Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. March is National Kidney Month. 37 million Americans have chronic kidney disease, also known as CKD, and most don't know it. High blood pressure and diabetes increase the risk for CKD. Symptoms of kidney disease may include fatigue, shortness of breath, lower back pain, high blood pressure, or changes in urination. If you want to protect your kidneys or learn how to get tested, Fresenius Kidney Care can help. Learn more at kidneyrisk.com. That's kidneyrisk.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Hello, and welcome to the DeathCast, the place where the cool kids come to learn about their true crime. I'm your host, author, and journalist Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me this week. Before we get going, as always, I have the normal show notes. If you'd like to follow me on social media, just search for Ian Totten, author, or the DeathCast. You can find photographs of the cases that I am discussing, as well as what I am going to term as daily motivation to get out there and go at it. If you'd like to become a Patreon member, you can just go to tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon for as little as $2 a month. You can become a patron of this show. Got a few shout-outs this week. New members to the Coffee Club. First off, we have Aaron from Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Julian from Secaucus, New Jersey. Mr. Big from Morgan Hill, California. All of those fine folks join the Coffee Club. And there is a new Coffee Club site to go to this week. It's simply buymeacoffee.com backslash deathcast. If you're wondering why I switched from PayPal to buymeacoffee.com, they do not take as big a percentage of the donations that the show receives. So for those of you who have donated over at PayPal, I appreciate it. And for those of you looking to join the coffee club, again, you can go to buymeacoffee.com backslash deathcast. All right, now that all of that is out of the way, I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes because I'm not on the road this week. 
Let's go into the crypt. So, case this week takes place in England, and some people have asked how come I cover so many cases over in the United Kingdom, and the simple answer is I find crime in the UK to be fascinating, but more than that, a large portion of this show's fan base is based in the United Kingdom. And it's partially a case of trying to keep those who support you happy. We're going to March 21st, 2002 in Weybridge, Surrey. Now, on that day, students were let out of the Heathside School in Weybridge, with many of the students making their way to the Weybridge Rail Station in order to take the train back home. Two of these girls were heading to Hersham, which is about 10 miles from Weybridge. Unfortunately, we don't know the names of many of these students because of UK law. We do know the name of one of them. That would be Amanda Jane Millie Dowler. Millie and her friend boarded the train and because it was a nice day out they decided that as opposed to going right home they would instead get off at an earlier stop that would be at Walton on Thames where they went to a local cafe to get something to eat. This cafe was actually located at the train station. Now after having something to eat Millie called her father, who was at home, at 3.47 p.m. to say that she would be home within the next half hour, and proceeded to walk home. Why they didn't get back on the train and take it one further stop down, I'm unsure. But from looking at maps, it doesn't seem to have been a very long walk. With her home being roughly one mile from the train station, they left at 4.05 p.m., and eventually the girls ended up splitting up, with Millie being last seen at 4.08 p.m. walking along Station Avenue, now, the person who saw her walking was actually a friend of Millie's sister who happened to be waiting at a bus stop. Millie continued on her way until this friend of her sister eventually lost sight of her. And eventually, when she did not return home, her parents became concerned. And by 7 p.m., her parents had contacted the police department who unfortunately came back to them with well maybe she ran away does she have a boyfriend that you're not aware of all the kind of things that when you have a missing child you do not want to hear from the police and the police continued with this line of thought that Miley was just a simple runaway, despite her parents' protestations that 
she didn't do this type of thing. She was not that type of a child. Eventually, the police did come around to jumping on the Dowler's way of thinking, and they announced that they were no longer dealing with a runaway. This was, in fact, a missing person slash abduction case. And this was a big deal in Great Britain. The police, though, had little to go on. Millie was last seen wearing her schoolgirl uniform and was known to have been carrying a Nokia 32010 mobile phone with Millie scrawled on it, a white plastic purse with a small red heart in one corner, a pendant with a fairy on it around her neck, and a pencil case. Millie's parents ended up appealing to the public for help on television, including doing a reconstruction on the television series Crime Watch. This, in turn, inundated the Surrey Police Department with thousands of telephone calls with people calling in to offer tips and possible suspect leads. As we know from other cases, however, while this is a great thing, it can also hamper a investigation as the police have to run down all of these tips and unfortunately these tips really led nowhere. Some of these tips had to do with false sightings of Millie, which you do get a lot of. She was seen everywhere from Ipswich all the way over to Scotland and everywhere in between. Again, the police have to track down these leads or at least make contact with law enforcement in those areas to see if there's any veracity to what they have been told. In the weeks that followed, police carried out extensive searches looking in waterways that were nearby and conducting house-by-house house searches where basically they would go up to each house and question the occupants. Of course, these turned up nothing and the police were left grasping at straws. The police were able to get their hands on closed-circuit television from the Bird's Eye Building. Now, the Bird's Eye Building is a former office building that housed the Bird's Eye Food Corporation. Both listeners in the United Kingdom and in the United States are well aware of this company. They're an international brand. Their headquarters was located in Surrey. And they had closed-circuit television on the outside of this building. Unfortunately, Millie was never seen having walked past this building, and that is important because this building was actually on her walk down Station Avenue. She would have had to have passed in front of it at some point, although looking at the cameras, the police were able to determine that somewhere between the bus stop and the Bird's Eye building, Millie simply disappeared. 
this case really grabbed the attention of the British people as 13-year-old girls going missing are a major deal over there. Unlike in the United States, where unfortunately it's more common than people think. The case was helped to gain traction by the media reporting of it as Millie was plastered on newspapers and broadsheets and television programs across the entire UK, along with interviews of her parents who were desperate to find where their daughter had gone to. The police eventually did inform her parents that you should probably prepare for the worst. Oftentimes with these kind of cases, as time goes on, the likelihood of us finding the person we're looking for still alive grows dimmer and dimmer. And eventually, it appeared that the case went cold, despite the fact that the police were still getting tips on it. On April 23rd of 2002, a body was discovered in the Thames River. Obviously, the media jumped all over this, speculating that it may belong to Millie, although the police later squashed this speculation and informed the public that this was, in fact, the body of a 73-year-old woman by the name of Maisie Thomas, who had gone missing in March of 2001. Side note, officers declared that Maisie's death was more likely than not of natural causes. By June, a large cash reward was being offered by the tabloid magazine The Sun. They were offering up to £100,000 for anyone who provided information that would lead to the discovery of Millie or the individual responsible for her disappearance. While all of this is going on, her parents and sister were besides themselves with her parents continuously texting their daughter's cell phone and making phone calls to it in the hopes that either Millie or someone else would answer. The UK took massive steps in their efforts to find Millie, some of which include placing large pictures of her on the sides of buses as well as handing out pamphlets at soccer games in the hopes of jogging someone's memory. Fortunately, this too leads to nothing. In late June, Surrey police revealed to the press that they've been in contact with their counterparts in London to discuss the disappearance of two women there. While the following month, the police actually send the CCTV footage that they've recovered from the Bird's Eye building to the United States, where the FBI begins to go over it. And on the same day that they do this, the police come forward and finally officially state that it's more likely than not that Millie had been the victim of a chance abduction. Prior to this, they were still operating under the assumption that 
she had gone off with somebody that she knew. And I imagine that they came to this conclusion after exhausting all leads, as oftentimes when someone goes missing or is murdered, the police look at the immediate family and friends of the victim as the first batch of potential suspects. Now we're into July, the police are starting to realize, okay, it's probably not likely that any of the individuals within Millie's life had anything to do with her abduction. So now they're starting to look outside the immediate family. They're broadening their net in the hopes of finding who could be responsible. In fact, they arrest quite a number of people over the ensuing months whom they question under caution about Millie's disappearance. Unfortunately, though, none of these people are able to offer them anything that will lead to a conclusion to this case. On September 12th, the FBI contacts Surrey Police with information that they have gleamed from the CCTV footage, and they point-blankly tell them they believe that there is a person standing next to a dark-colored vehicle, although because the sunlight is obscuring the image partially, they can't tell for certain, and the Surrey police actually issue a public plea to the driver of this vehicle to come forward, although nothing comes of this. On September 18th of 2020, a group of mushroom hunters in the Yately Heath Woods, which is near Yately, Hampshire, roughly 30 miles from Walton-on-Thames, contact police as they have found a body in the woods. Police in the area go and recover the body as well as cordoned off the area and they run a dental check on the body because the body is extremely decomposed which it obviously would be after spending six months exposed to the elements two days later the police contact the officials in Surrey and say, hey, we've got a ID on this body. Unfortunately, it is the remains of Millie Dowler. So the Surrey police head out to Yately, where they take possession of the body, but they also begin a search of the area. After informing the family of the discovery of Millie's body, the police make a public announcement that they have, in fact, discovered her remains. Although, as always, there's holdback information on this. Police didn't find a whole lot of evidence at the crime scene. None of Millie's clothing or personal possessions could be located, and in fact, they've never been located to this day. Eventually, they would find traces of an unknown male DNA on her body, 
And unfortunately, police, upon the discovery of this, turned their attention back to Millie's father. They did this under the pretense that, as I already discussed, oftentimes when someone goes missing, it has to do with their close relations with children. Oftentimes it's a parent or a sibling. So it's understandable why they went and focused on the father. However, they made this information public, which is not okay. You're focusing your attention on someone, it's just my personal belief. Until you have concrete evidence one way or the other, police need to keep that information close to their vest. Because if it turns out that this person is not responsible, you've just created a whole hell of a lot of public doubt in the mind of the general public concerning this person, which is what happened here. Eventually, they are able to exclude Millie's father, and they make a public plea as they have witnesses stating that they saw a schoolgirl in a field with two unidentified men, and the field was about 300 yards, give or take, from where Millie's body was discovered. Obviously, now they've got the public thinking that there are possibly two unknown individuals who abducted and murdered Miley, and the fact that her body was found nude, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out what more likely than not happened to Miley Dowler. This created something of a panic throughout Great Britain as now you have thousands of parents, if not millions, thinking, is this going to happen to my daughter? Unfortunately, though, the case, it doesn't go cold. They're still investigating it, but there really isn't much in the terms of actual hard evidence that the police are able to get over the next few months. They do set up a roadblock in November of 2002, and it's estimated that they interviewed around 6,000 drivers in an effort to try and get any information that they can concerning Miley's disappearance and her discovery in this wooded area in Yeatley. Nothing much happens until about 2003. You remember when I discussed that they did eventually find DNA evidence? In March of 2003, the police found DNA evidence on clothing that belonged to Millie. This clothing was actually discovered at her home, and it was from an unidentified male, which led police to believe that there was a possibility Millie may have known her killer, although within three months, the police dismissed this idea, along with another idea that a robbery suspect may have been linked to her disappearance and murder. 
While all of this is going on, the Dowler family has its own problems. Because obviously now they are dealing with the knowledge that their daughter has been murdered, but they're also known throughout Great Britain. And this led to a number of people contacting the family. While some of these individuals were trying to be helpful, not all of them were. One individual by the name of Paul Hughes was found to have been th sending threatening letters to Millie's younger sister. At the time, the police did not know who was sending these letters, only that the individual was threatening to kill this sister and also claiming to have killed Millie. Eventually, the police were able to track down where these letters were coming from, and it was found that they were coming from a prison where a, this man, Paul Hughes, was serving a five-year sentence for indecently assaulting a 12-year-old girl. Now the police department and the prison's system have egg on their face, and they basically profusely apologize to the family for their blunder in not screening the mail thoroughly enough. But this was not all. There was also a woman who contacted the Dowler family, the police, and Millie's former school claiming to be her. This woman would eventually be found to be Leanne Newman of Tewksbury, Gloucestershire, and she would end up going to jail for five months over this. Others also contacted the family, school, police, and anyone else who would listen, claiming numerous things, such as that Millie had been smuggled out of the country to work as a stripper and a prostitute against her will, along with the idea that her death was actually a hoax perpetrated by these individuals who had kidnapped her to throw everyone off their trail. Obviously, this is all bullshit, but the individuals doing it are simply acting on the need to cause further harm to a family already in pain. As I stated, at this point, it seems as though the case has gone cold, although that is only to outside observers. We will get into this more in just a moment.
And we are back. I have a nice fresh pack of smokes and a steaming hot cup of coffee. On February 3rd, 2003, 19-year-old Marsha Louise McDonald was getting off a bus in Hampton, London, when she was assaulted by an unknown perpetrator. Marcia was struck in the head with a blunt object before being left at the scene to die. Marcia was described as a hard-working young woman who was in between years at college. She decided to take a year off, and people have stated that she was a very friendly, outgoing young woman who was an extremely talented violinist. Let me reconstruct this night very quickly. Marcia had gone to the movies with friends of hers and then taken the 111 bus from Kingston upon Thames to a stop on Percy Road. Upon getting off the bus, she encountered an individual and was later found by passerbys. Marcia was taken to the hospital in serious condition, and unfortunately she died two days later. A post-mortem was conducted on Marcia, and it was found that she had multiple skull fractures, which led to bleeding around the brain, and this in turn led to her demise. On May 28, 2004, an 18-year-old woman by the name of Kate Sheedy was crossing a road near an industrial estate in Islesworth, which is near London. Kate had been out celebrating the end of her exams when a car came roaring up on her and ran her, her down. So this young woman was left lying in the street, and she had sense enough to pull out her cell phone and call her mother to state that somebody ran me over, I am dying. The police show up at the scene along with an ambulance and they get Kate to a hospital where miraculously she survives and she's able to give a description of the vehicle that ran her over. She said it was a white minivan with blacked out windows and a broken mirror on one of the sides. Although the police didn't have any other evidence besides Kate's description of this vehicle. On August 19th of 2004, Amelie Delagrange was found by a passerby near a cricket field in Twickenham. Now, I've read various reports as to who Amelie was. Some state that she was a French student who was on holiday to Great Britain, while others that she, while she was a French student, she was actually living and working in the area at the time. Regardless, it was discovered that Amelie had serious head wounds. She was taken to the hospital after this individual who found her flagged down a police officer where unfortunately she died later that evening. Police quickly surmised, however, that 
Amelie's murder was more likely than not a standalone crime as her attack and injuries bore a striking similarity to those suffered by Marsha McDonald, who, if you'll recall, had been murdered just 18 months previously. Reconstructing Amelie's last night, they found that not only did the attack itself bear striking similarities, but also Amelie's last evening did as well. She had been at a wine bar with a friend that evening before getting on a bus that dropped her in the Twickenham area somewhere between 9.30 and 10 o'clock that evening, after which she was found some time later to have been assaulted. Police began to theorize that they might have an individual who was prowling around bus stops looking for white women who were on their own who they could attack. And in fact, looking into it further, it was discovered that in April, a 34-year-old woman had been attacked in Twickenham. And they believed at that time that it might, in fact, be connected to the other crimes. Amelie's murder investigation was headed by a man by the name of Colin Sutton, who was a DCI who worked with the Met, which is basically the London Police Department. He's something of a legend in the last 15 years, because he handled and solved a number of high-profile cases within London. Now, the breakthrough in this case came almost by accident. Sutton was working this case. He's heading a team, and they discovered that Emily's phone had been stolen, but not only that, it had been used... In Walton on Thames, which, if you'll recall, is where Millie had been murdered. So, with this, knowing that the person who killed Emily has been back out in Walton on Thames, Sutton directs his team to start looking at closed circuit television footage from Twickenham as well as. Walton on Thames, and what they discover is that on the night of Amelie's murder, there was a white Ford van, a minivan really, in the general vicinity where she was found to have been assaulted. But they also found this same white van in Walton on Thames. So now they have a vehicle. And I'm quoting DCI Sutton from an article in MyLondon.News. We worked every hour for weeks. The van was identified as a Ford Courier manufactured between 1996 and 2000. There were 25,000 in the UK, and I wanted to look at every single one. They're looking into this, and a woman by the name of Johanna Collings contacts the police and informs them that 
she believes her ex-boyfriend may have been responsible for Emily's death. So the police now start looking into this man named Levi Belfield, and they discovered that during the time when Amelie was murdered, Belfield did in fact own a white Ford Courier. Looking around at other unsolved crimes, they came across Kate Sheedy, who had been run over, and when showing her pictures of this van, she identified it as the one that had run her down. Now the police are going, okay, this is not more than coincidence. We have one murder in Twickenfield we can tie this van to, but now we've also got this hit and run where the van is being positively identified. So they start watching Belfield, and they put him under police surveillance. And it was through this surveillance police noticed a very disturbing trait of this Belfield character. He had a habit of pulling up to bus stops where young women, usually with very large chests, were standing by themselves. He would pull up to these women and begin talking to them. Police correctly surmised that this was how he had encountered the known victim, Amelie. Eventually, police decide that they need to move in and make an arrest of this man in order to question him, and they do so on the morning of November 22nd. And they arrested him on suspicion of the murdery of Amelie de Lagrange. And when police started looking into Levi Belfield's background, they couldn't believe the things that they were coming across. Levi Rabbits was born May 17th of 1968 in Isleworth, London, to Jean and Joseph Rabbits. It appears that his parents got divorced early on in his life, and his mother ended up remarrying to a man by the name of Alfie Belfield, who died when Levi was 10 years old. At school, Levi was said to be overweight and the object of ridicule from the girls in his school. Apparently, he thought himself something of a player and was routinely rejected by these girls who made fun of him for his weight, the way he looked, as well as the fact that he had a very high-pitched, squeaky voice. Around the age of 13, Levi was arrested for burglary. Also of note, when he was 12 years old, it's purported that... Belfield had a girlfriend by the name of Patsy Morris who was found strangled to death on Hanslow Heath and police suspect that he may in fact have been responsible for this young woman's murder. In any event, he went on to have a rather tumultuous upbringing throughout the 1980s and 1990s. He was roughly six foot tall and well over 200 pounds by this point. And people said that he saw women 
as nothing more than objects to be used, controlled, and then discarded as he deemed fit, with particular hatred being aimed towards blonde women. In an article from The Telegraph, Elfield is described in his late teens and early 20s as being, quote, a handsome young man with the gift of gab who dated a string of attractive girls. He had dozens of lovers and caused ructions when several became pregnant at once. After his arrest for the murder of Amelie, police began talking to friends and former girlfriends of Belfield, and the image that was painted was much different from the one that he projected to the public. He was described as girlfriends as being violent and controlling, alternating between nice and kind and cruel and sadistic, while friends stated that he had his van set up so that he could go cruising at night in order to look for what he called targets. Basically, what he would do is he would pull up to a bus stop or a train station where he spied an attractive girl and begin talking to her, laying on the charm in an effort to get her to get inside of his vehicle. Once the girl was inside of his vehicle, whether he was alone or in a group, he would offer them drugs, sometimes ketamine, at other times cocaine, after which, once the girl was basically out of it, he and his friends would have their way with her before dumping her on the side of the road somewhere. But that's not all. These same friends described instances where he became enraged because the young woman in question would rebuff him, and he would begin verbally assaulting her and threatening to intimidate the girl, although it's not known whether or not he ever escalated from verbal intimidation of these women while in the presence of these friends. And when you read articles about Belfield, something striking is how nonchalant his friends are in their assaults of these young women, almost as though it was something that all of them had a right to do. And it was only after his arrest that these individuals maybe thought better of this. My guess is that they came forward because they feared that they too would end up getting charged with something, which they more likely than not should have been. In any event, Belfield worked as a bouncer and also had his own company, which was placing boots on cars. No, that's not an English term. It's You've seen them. They're those boots that clamp onto the front wheel of a car so it can't be drive, driven away. Usually it'll happen is a company will have somebody parked on their property illegally and they'll contact one of these companies to come and put a boot on it so that the owner of the vehicle cannot leave when they come back to get their vehicle and then that company can then proceed to press charges on the individual. One individual who worked with Belfield in this business of booting cars stated in regards to Belfield having had a 14-year-old girlfriend 
She was a naive little girl and he didn't treat her very well. Her sister was a tiny girl, 14 years old. He told me he had sex with her. I remember being disgusted. I met her on one occasion and he asked me, do you want to buy her off me? One of his many, many, many ex-girlfriends informed police that she had noticed his hatred for blonde women early on in their relationship when she came home to find a magazine she'd been reading in the garbage. And upon pulling it out, she discovered that every picture of a blonde woman was slashed with a knife. So you can get an idea of how Levi Belfield viewed women. When this girlfriend confronted him about defacing her magazine, he told her that he hated blonde women and that he would go hunting at night for them, finding them and dragging them to alleys where he would rape and then murder them. Why this woman never went forward to the police with this information, assuming she believed it, is beyond me. In 1990, he was arrested for assaulting a police officer, and he was also arrested numerous times throughout the decade and into the early 2000s for things such as burglary and theft. Describing Belfield, Colin Sutton, DCI, stated, When we first started dealing with him, he came across as very jokey, like he's your best mate. But he's a cunning individual, violent. He can switch from being nice to nasty instantly. Sutton further went on to state, Belfield has a massive ego to feed. He thinks he's God's gift to everyone. He drives around in his car, feels a bit whatever, and sees some young blonde girl. Young blonde girl says go away, and he thinks, You dare to turn down Levi Belfield? You're worth nothing and then she gets a whack over the head. It is shown in the case of Kate Sheedy. She was m smart enough to think she didn't like the look of his car and crosses the road. He thinks you're not so clever, and whoosh, he runs her over. Describing him further, former girlfriends said that he was completely charming at first until he gets you underneath his thumb, usually living with him, at which point he becomes completely controlling and evil. On November 25th of 2004, Belfield ended up being charged with three counts of rape in Surrey in West London. Well, on December 9th, he was charged with assaulting women in Twickenham between 1995 and 1997. It was at this point that he was remanded to custody, which, if you'll recall from previous episodes taking place in Great Britain, being remanded into custody be basically means being held without bail. While he's sitting in his jail cell, police are continuing to look into his past and trying to connect crimes to him. On March 2nd of... 2006, while in custody, Belfield was rearrested and charged with Amelie's murder and the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy, along with the attempted murder of Irma Dragoshi. And on May 
25th of 2006, he was formally charged with the murder of 19-year-old Marshall McDonald. So while he's being charged with all these things, as I said, the police are still looking into him, and they also start looking into why he may have been out in Walton on Thames. And they start looking further into Millie Dowler. Now, unfortunately for Millie, she was his preferred target, short, kind of blondish hair, physically pronounced for her age. And they learned while looking into this that Levi had in fact been living very close to where Millie had last been seen with he was living with his girlfriend and the mother of five of his 11 children looking into the CTV footage they discovered a red Daewoo Nexia which is a really like a compact car if you go search online for it it's very similar to say a Ford Taurus and they learned that Belfield's girlfriend at the time, and again, the mother of five of his 11 children, Emma Mills, had such a vehicle during this period of time, and that in fact, Belfield had pretty much unlimited access to this car. Well, being interviewed by police in 2009, Belfield admitted that he was in fact driving that car during the period of time that Millie went missing. So, Belfield ends up going on trial in 2008 under the two murder charges as well as the attempted murder of Irma Dragashi and the false imprisonment and abduction of Anna Marie Renee, which had taken place in October of 2001. While he is not convicted for the attempted murder or the abduction, he is convicted for the murder of McDonald and Delagrange, as well as the attempted murder of Sheedy, for which he gets a life sentence with a whole life tariff, meaning that he will never be eligible for parole. On the day of his sentencing, Levi refused to be appear in court as he said that there was unfair and biased news media coverage of his trial. On March 30th, 2010, Levi... Belfield was charged with the murder and abduction of Millie Dowler, along with quote-unquote abuses, meaning he sexually assaulted her. On May 10, 2011, Belfield's trial began at the Old Bailey in London, and on the 23rd of June, he was found guilty and was once again sentenced to a life tariff. Also during this trial, he was charged with the attempted abduction of another girl, this one an 11-year-old, although this charge was remanded on file, meaning that should something happen and his other crimes get thrown out or he's resentenced, they can then turn around and recharge him with this crime. 
On January 27th of 2016, it was announced that Levi Belfield had made a full confession to the rape and murder of Millie Gowler. He had made this confession roughly eight months prior to this. I'm going to play a small part from his interrogation. This is not where he actually admits to committing the crime. Unfortunately, Great Britain has not released that bit of audio, but during this part you're going to hear an officer grilling him, and afterwards I'll explain what happened. Did you get kicked out of any in these sort of cars? No, come in. Do you think it's a macho type of thing for you? No. Do you think it will help your notoriety? No, come in. Do you honestly believe that your actions over the 21st and the 27th of March 2002 are the actions of an innocent man? Then are you an innocent man? Because if you are, tell us. And give us that explanation for where you were and what you were doing. Are you able to do that, Leroy? Sarah's told you what she believes you did, that particular day. And I wholly support what she says. I believe you took her off the street that day. I believe your motivation was sexual. And I believe you took her back to Collingwood Place. And I believe you killed her there. That's the truth, isn't it? That's what happened. And if you today and next year to move her body, is that the truth? That's what's happened, isn't it? And then sometime over the following few days, you've driven down to Hampshire, an area that you know, and you've dumped her body. That's the truth, isn't it? During that bit of audio, you can hear Belfield repeatedly stating, no comment, no comment, no comment, every time officers put questions, or rather statements, to him. And unfortunately, he does eventually break down and admit what it is he has done. There's a content warning here because this particular crime is much more heinous than the others that Levi committed. So you might want to skip ahead a couple of minutes, alright? Numerous sources state different reasons why Levi decided to cooperate with police. During this period of time, they had a man in custody who was suspected of being his accomplice. There's also a story that he had confessed to one of his cellmates and that this man was preparing to get out of prison and he believed the man was going to tell the story. The story Levi tells is very disturbing. After abducting Miley Belfield, brought her back to the apartment that he shared with his girlfriend, at which point he sexually assaulted her. According to police, after this assault, he then took... Millie from the apartment and drove to his mother's home where he quote-unquote raped her in broad daylight over the boot of his car. After this, he moved Millie to another location where he continued to sexually assault her. And this carried on until the next day, at which point Belfield, the piece of shit, decided to 
take the young girl's life. Belfield stated that the entire abduction, sexual assaults, and torture took roughly 14 hours, and that at the end he drove Miley's body out to where it was found and strangled her to death. Her family learned of all of this, as I said, roughly eight, nine months beforehand, and had to keep quiet because the police still had this suspect, who they believed may have been his accomplice, in custody. And I can't imagine how difficult that must have been, knowing this information that this SOB has confessed and not being able to tell anyone about it had to have been hell on earth gonna read part of the family's statement when they were eventually allowed to speak. I think it's a fitting epitaph for Millie. Now we know the final hours of Millie's life. Perhaps her soul, at long last, can finally rest in peace. Although he's never admitted to having had a, an accomplice, given what we know about Levi Belfield and the fact that he and his friends would go cruising for young women, my gut feeling is that more likely than not there was another individual involved in Millie's abduction and rape, although I'm not going to go so far as to say that this other individual was necessarily involved with her murder. It could well be that the two men took her prisoner, had their way with her. Belfield dropped his friend off elsewhere and then returned to further torture and then murder Millie without the other man's knowledge. He's currently incarcerated at H.M. Prison Franklin in Brasside County, Durham, England. Some interesting things about Levi Belfield. Police believe he's responsible for numerous other crimes. I already spoke about Patsy Morris who was found strangled on June 16, 1980. One of the reasons police believe he may be linked to this is, A, it's been said that they were going out at the time, although I found nothing to verify that. Those who knew Belfield at the time of Patsy's murder stated that Belfield was obsessed with the crime. Although... The Morris family has subsequently stated that they had no idea that Belfield knew Patsy and they really had no idea that she had a boyfriend during the period of time when she died. So that does give an indication that maybe this relationship was something that Belfield created in his own mind. It is known that these types of sexual predators do have a very rich fantasy life and oftentimes will imagine themselves being in a relationship with someone that doesn't actually exist and eventually when they attempt to bring this relationship out into the real world and it's rejected they react violently and go from this fantasy world into reality 
another crime that police are attempting to link Belfield to is the murder of Judith Gold, which took place in Hampstead, London on October 20th, 1990. She was quite a bit older than Belfield's known victims, being 51 years old at the time of her murder. I don't see this one as having been committed by him. The only th part of his M.O. that matches is that Judith was bludgeoned to death. And the reason that they're attempting to link this case to him is that between 1990 and 2004, there were at least 20 assaults where a victim was bludgeoned from behind. As these types of murders where a hammer or something similar is used are fairly rare. And according to the BBC, Belfield admitted to a cellmate that he was in fact responsible for the murder of Lynn Russell and her daughter Megan in 1996, although Belfield has denied having been responsible for this or even given this confession. And this was corroborated by one of Belfield's ex-wives who stated that the day the Russells were murdered, Belfield had been with her as it was her 25th birthday. In 2015, Belfield, from his prison cell, admitted to further murders and rapes, naming names, and these have never led anywhere. The police believe at this point that he simply did it in an effort to harm the victim's family and loved ones. Although, my personal belief is, given what we know about this guy and how he viewed women, how he treated them, it's very likely that there are other murders he may be responsible for. It's almost a guarantee that there are definitely other rapes that he took part in. As, generally speaking, this type of sexual offender very rarely just suddenly goes from 0 to 60. In that, I mean, these individuals usually practice voyeurism beforehand, or they're involved in rapes for a period of time before they escalate to murder. Perfect example being Paul Bernardo. He committed innumerable rapes before he eventually escalated to the point where he wasn't just raping the women, he was killing them as well. So I do believe that there are many, many other victims out there who either police have not identified or simply have decided not to come forward, which is their right because the man responsible for their assault is behind bars and will never see the light of day again. That is going to do it for the Death Cast this week. Again, I want to thank you for joining me, as you do each and every week. Again, if you enjoy this show, please consider subscribing wherever it is you find your favorite podcasts and leave a five-star review. And don't forget to check out our new sponsor, Cobra Killer, Gay Porn Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice. 
by Andrew E. Stoner and Peter A. Conway. Until next time, the Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.